But will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Make them listen to me before it's too late. Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you. Who can resist that movie trailer from 1956 for Invasion of the Body Snatchers, a trailer that serves as the perfect warm-up for this episode of the Fiction Science Podcast? Greetings, Earthlings. I'm science editor Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the podcast that comes to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co-host, science fiction writer Dominica Fetaplace, as we talk with Benjamin Percy, the author of The Unfamiliar Garden, a new novel that updates the classic body snatcher story with the science of fungi, the surroundings of the Pacific Northwest, and an edginess that parallels the COVID pandemic. We'll discuss how the unfamiliar garden fits into the broader sweep of a saga that Percy calls the Comet Cycle, and we'll also touch on how his experience as a comic book writer has sharpened his skills as a novelist and a screenwriter. So listen to us. Please listen, or you may regret it. You and I are scientific men. You can understand the wonder of what's happened. Now just think, less than a month ago, Santa Mara was like any other town, people with nothing but problems. Then out of the sky came a solution. Seeds drifting through space for years took root in a farmer's field. From the seeds came pods, which have the power to reproduce themselves in the exact likeness of any form of life. So that's how it began. Out of the sky. Like the invasion of the body snatchers, the invader in Benjamin Percy's new novel, The Unfamiliar Garden, comes down from the sky, specifically in the form of a mysterious comet that brings something alien down to Earth. To flesh out the behavior of his invader, Percy turned to the real-world science of mushrooms and fungi and set his story in one of the most fungi-friendly corners of the country, the Pacific Northwest. This region is home to what some consider the largest organism on Earth, the so-called humongous fungus in eastern Oregon, which spans more than 2,000 acres. During our interview with Percy, Dominica Fetaplace and I discussed how the unfamiliar garden fits into the author's grand vision to create a multi-layered saga around the encounter with the comet and its aftermath, a saga as sweeping as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That comparison is apt for at least two reasons. One, because Percy is also a comic book writer who has scripted series for such titles as Green Arrow and Wolverine. And two, because the comet cycle is already being turned into a cinematic production. You'll hear about all that and more in the interview, which began with me asking Benjamin Percy to give his elevator pitch for The Unfamiliar Garden. As for the elevator pitch, I sort of have a bifurcated elevator pitch. One is for the comet cycle as a whole, uh, which this is book two of. So the comet cycle as a whole, you know, has an age-old sci-fi concept incorporated into it. The trigger event is a comet comes streaking through the solar system, Our planet spins through the debris field and new elements are introduced to the world that 
upend the laws of physics, geology, biology that create chaos on the geopolitical theater that uh, shake up the, the energy sector and the weapons sector, and in a very marvelly sort of way, creates a new dawn of heroes and villains. <laughs> now, as for the second book in this cycle, uh, you know, this is not a trilogy in the classic sense. The idea is that you can read any of these books in any order. So this is book two, but it is a standalone novel. Now, I always have a structural sort of goal, a stylistic goal when I start a book. And one of the things I wanted to do here was write a he said, she said novel that you could compare to, say, Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff um, or Gone Girl or uh, the show The Affair. And anyways, so there's two characters, two central characters. One is a mycologist, a professor at the University of Washington. And the other is a detective with the Seattle PD. Now, these two used to be married. And the thing that destroyed an already shaky marriage was that their daughter vanished. And this happened on the night that the meteors fell. So we've moved forward five years, and he is investigating, the mycologist is investigating some new fungal life that is growing in the Pacific Northwest. And his ex-wife, the detective, is investigating a series of clues connected to some ritualistic murders happening in the Seattle Metro. Now these two disparate threads will be woven together because they're connected. And as a result, these two characters are brought back together professionally at first, but it becomes much more personal than that later because there's the possibility that their daughter is still alive. Wow, that was quite an elevator ride. Love it. We took two <laughs> elevators to the top. Uh, so there's not going to be a cliffhanger? Uh, is there the central narrative that ties the three novels together? Or, or is it really well, the, a the real comet, The comet is what ties them all together. Uh, they all, though, take place simultaneously oh. in different parts of the country. Oh, I so the see. first book, for instance, takes place in northern Minnesota and has to do with the strike that occurs there uh, that deposits a new metal called Omnimetal. And it has absorbent properties so that it can carry kinetic energy in it on a quantum level. And as a result of that, the middle of nowhere, northern Minnesota, becomes the center of everything. It becomes kind of a contemporary deadwood. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are characters that show up in the ninth metal who also show up in the unfamiliar garden. And the same will be true for the third book in the series. But again, you can read them as standalone. You can read book two before you read book one or book three before you read book two. And and uh, what I'm doing here is essentially creating my own Marvel universe. I've been writing for Marvel or DC since 2014. And. One of the things that I've always loved about comics is that they are a shared universe, right? What happens in Wonder Woman carries over to Superman, carries over to Batman. Now you can follow those individual threads or you can read across all those titles and get a more holistic understanding of what's happening in that shared universe. Now there are plenty of fiction writers doing the same thing. Faulkner was essentially building his own shared universe. Louise Erdrich essentially has built her own 
shared universe. And I'm just talking about, you know, people who are writing literary realism, not speculative fiction. There's so many shared universes that exist, uh, including, you know, notably lately, uh, N.K. Jemisin's work. Um, and, and anyways, I wanted to sort of take what I've learned from comics, take what I've learned from literature when it comes to these shared universes and, and you know, uh, blur the lines and, and, and build a sandbox of my own. Because as fun as it is to write, say, Wolverine, and it's a childhood dream come true, writing Wolverine. He's my favorite comics character. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, he doesn't belong to me. I'm a custodian of him. And so I, I, I wanted to build my own shared universe. There could be three books. It could be six books. It could be 20. It could be 30. I could keep, you know, I can, this is an ever expanding canvas. Uh, and right now, I guess you could say we're in the Iron Man, Thor, Spider-Man version of it all, where eventually we'll come to an Avengers Assemble moment. I thought that was so interesting. It's, it's a trilogy but you can read the books in any order. So I read The Unfamiliar Garden first. That's more of like uh, like sci-fi, horror. And now I'm reading The Ninth Metal. I got it from my library, so you can read it in any order. Ninth Metal is more of like a, like a Western sort of crime. They all have like this through line of superhero science fiction. So now I'm like super curious, what's the third book going to be? The third book is called Sky Vault. Uh, now, all of the books, too, have the same prologue the same foundation uh, and Skyball takes place in Alaska and has to do with mirror matter and dark matter and opens up the possibility of some interdimensional shenanigans that might be going on. So a lot of the comet cycle is contextualized in the third book. We all know that the periodic table has its limits and and that any comet that comes streaking through our solar system would have the same elements already present on earth right because everything comes out of the big bang so how is it that these new materials are being discovered um you know i get into that and i try to create in all of these books a kind of slippery science you know you refer to it as superhero science fiction but i do try to sit down with scientists you know with the unfamiliar garden i sat down with a biologist from carlton college uh, i sat down with and took a class from the wolf ridge environmental center on the north shore of superior uh with ninth metal you know i talked to geologists i talked to physicists and and in each of these cases like i'm trying to create a sort of an authenticity to material that is otherwise out of this world. I know that you, you have some roots in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, that's where the Unfamiliar Garden is set. And it turns out that this is kind of a hotspot for mushrooms and fungi. Uh, can you uh, talk about how much you knew about fungi before you started working on the book and any fun facts yeah, yeah. that you learned during your research? Well, I grew up in Bend, Oregon, and spent a lot of time exploring the Pacific Northwest. My parents are obsessive uh, naturalists. And, 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 you know, we spent almost every weekend, it seemed like, heading off into eastern Oregon or western Washington. And, and we'd be either, you know, stopping along the Lewis and Clark Trail or we'd be uh, excavating petrified wood from, from some dry canyon or, you know, digging up geodes or fishing or hunting. And, and so my mom, she's, she's trained as a botanist. She worked for the Forest Service. 
And so you can't to this day go on a mile long walk with her without her pausing every 10 paces to say, oh, what's this plant? And let's figure out what the Latin name is. And let's, you know, figure out what its medicinal properties are. So a lot of that stuff, in other words, is ingrained in me already. But in doing research, you know, I, here's a fun little tidbit. Most people think that blue whales are the largest organism on earth. And they're wrong. You know, it's a fungus. It's a pathogenic fungus that takes up about 3,000 acres in eastern Oregon in the Blue Mountains. And it's estimated to be 8,000 years old and... And yeah, the PNW is its garden. And, and botanists have tried to find the edges of this thing, but there is no edge because it's, it's expanding constantly. And, and on the surface, you'll see these, you know, these yellow capped um, honey mushrooms pop up, but underneath the soil, there's these rhizomorphs that are just slowly fingering their way outward. And they're, they're, they're filaments that just, they weave tighter and tighter together and, and they form this mat. And, and the digestive enzymes of this thing, that the, what it secretes, it kills conifers. So I have stood over this fungus. Uh, and that was one of the initial you know, germs of inspiration. Uh, I stood over this fungus uh, outside of Joseph, Oregon, and and here are these yellow cap mushrooms, and then and then all around me is a skeletal forest, and I was just thinking about how this thing, this massive, unguessable, unguessably big thing, was cannibalizing the forest around it. Um, whereas most, you know, a lot of fungus is 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 more cooperative in its properties. You know, the mycelium networks beneath most forests are 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 transferring chemicals and transferring information um, between the roots of trees. And, and so just this idea that um, there's this otherworldly fungus that comes from the comet's debris and it uses people sort of in a similar way to the way that this fungus is using the forest. And, and there are no aliens in my book there is an alien singular, you know, this, this mycelium network, this fungus that's spreading among us. It's creating a united intelligence. It's creating uh, a situation that reads like a contemporary invasion of the body snatchers. I was just going to say, uh, I wondered if you got a strong invasion of the body snatchers vibe from uh, thinking about this book, because there's a grand tradition. You could also point to the Day of the Triffids or the Andromeda strain, even Alien. So did you feel like you were really getting into that huge vibe over uh, alien infections when you were writing this book? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, like look at look at narratives like John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, or H.P. Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, or, or Arthur C. Clarke's The Hammer of God, or, or, or George R. R. Martin's Clash of Kings, even George Romero's Night of the Dead, Living Dead, right? They rely on comets as a supernatural device, as an instigator of change. And, and so I'm taking this age-old symbol of collective fear, and I'm using it as a way to fantastically magnify the anxieties we face, right? It's, it's about, I think speculative fiction often does this, right? It's about societal unease, cultural unease, uh, but it's telling it in sort of a slanted, warped, cracked mirror way. Uh, 
right? So the ninth metal is about alien metal, but it's also about like rapacious energy consumption and the destructive synergy of business and politics and, you know, intrusion from foreigners that threaten the national identity of some or like the reckless development of technology that outpaces our understanding of the world uh, and, and so on. But with the un unfamiliar garden, right? One of the things that I was thinking about is I started writing this during the pandemic. And one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, what we fear right now principally is contagion. And there is an invisible enemy that rides the air in this novel, right? In the form of spores. And sometimes the person who your neighbors with, the person who you work with, the person who lives in your house or sleeps in your same bed, you know, they could already be inhabited uh, and you don't even know it. And, and that is a very invasion of the body snatchers vibe. Uh, the Unfamiliar Garden, it contains a lot of references to COVID-19. It's set in the near future. So the pandemic is the past, but it's not the distant past. How did you decide how to work in the pandemic into this narrative. It was a tricky thing because I wrote it at the start of the pandemic and I really didn't know how long this was going to go on. And, and I ultimately decided I'm going to make reference to it, but it's going to be passing reference. You know, I, I think maybe there's three references, four references, maybe entirely to it. Some of that's just a little prescient. Like when it, it came to the masks, you know, there's one point in the book where there's this one woman, the, the detective I was talking about before, and she is a bit of a germaphobe. Um, and that's the thing that ends up keeping her safe, actually, uh, whereas others end up infected. And, and there's a moment when she's walking around with a mask and people are upset with her for wearing it because it reminds them of COVID. You know, they would rather have amnesia about that, the fact that COVID happened, that the pandemic happened. And so it's just upsetting to them to see her. And so I mentioned the way that people are sort of suspiciously turning towards her um, in, in one scene. And, you know, it's just trying to trying to find a few trigger points that make this feel not just like, you know, something fantastical, but something that that could be. You grew up in the Pacific Northwest and this novel is set in Seattle. What kind of research did you do? Well, I you know grew up in the Pacific Northwest and I've traveled to Washington many times over as an adult as well, including a recent trip of 20, 2018, we spent about two weeks in the Olympic Peninsula. Um, and so, you know, some of that stuff is just the accidental research that you have in life, right? You, there's intentional research and there's accidental research. My accidental research is that my mom is a trained botanist, that my mom worked for the Forest Service, that I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, that I traveled to the Pacific Northwest recently. So that sort of stuff is already there. And just the Pacific Northwest looms in my mind because that's the stage of my childhood. That's the stage of a lot of my fiction. I've lived in Minnesota now for 10 years. The Ninth Metal is actually the first novel, the first story that I've written here. It felt like it took me that long to be able to capture it adequately. And I mean the culture of the area, the geography of the area, the politics of the area, the vernacular of the area, the myths etc. But having grown up in, in Oregon, Washington, right, all of that stuff is already embedded in my DNA. And, and oftentimes, you know, when I close my eyes, that's where I go. 
So, you know, why did I set it there for those reasons? But also because if I was going to write a story about alien plant life, why not go to one of the wettest corners of the country? Like, you know, the, the, that, that moist quality of Seattle, right? You feel like sometimes you can just punch your hand through concrete and pull out a bunch of squirming earthworms. So I figured if, if, if fungus is going to grow any place, it's, it's there. There's also kind of an astrobiology angle to this, uh, that uh, there's a theory that life was uh, moved from one planet to the other through comet strikes, asteroid strikes. Uh, there's a whole theory called panspermia about this. Is that something that you were aware of? Well, they say that fungus has much more to do with animals than it does plants, but also that fungus, the origin of fungus is likely space. Um, so that informed my thinking on this for sure. I have a question. Uh, so reading the ninth metal, I can definitely sense the influence of literary realism, even though it's not a work of literary realism at all. But, uh, yeah, like I mentioned before, it's got horror, it's got suspense. The other book has, uh, like mystery and Western. So I get the sense that you read very widely. I'm curious who some of your influences are. You know, I grew up on genre fiction. I grew up on fantasy novels and sci-fi novels and horror novels and mystery novels. You know, I grew up on on robots with laser eyes and vampires and dragons and barbarians with woolly underpants. Um, but then I stepped into my first creative writing classroom and I was promptly told there would be no genre, no genre read or no genre and no genre written. And I very earnestly put up my hand and I was like, but what else is there? And, you know, I was soon thereafter introduced to the works of Raymond Carver, and James Baldwin, and Alice Monroe, and Leslie Silco, and all these writers who I'd never encountered before. I fell in love with literary fiction. I never fell out of love with genre. But over the next few years, that's all that these creative writing classes at the university offered was literary realism. So, you know, that was training ground for me as a writer. And I eventually came to a place where I was sort of most interested in the writers who were neither fish nor fowl, both literary and genre, you could say. Uh, writers like Margaret Atwood, uh, writers like Kate Atkinson, or, uh, you know, Octavia Butler, or N.K. Jemison, or, you know, uh, Peter Straub, Dennis Lehane, Cormac McCarthy. Where does Cormac McCarthy belong in a bookstore? You know, you could put No Country for Old Men and Crime. You could put All the Pretty Horses and Western, Child of God is Horror, The Road is Post-Apocalyptic, All the Pretty Horses is Western, you know, Suchery is Literature with a capital L. Who knows? Who cares? You know, what I'm ultimately trying to do is tell stories that are, that are artfully told but compulsively readable. And yeah, I, I try to read widely. I try to read across mediums. I try to read across genres uh, because in doing so, I'm varying my diet uh, in the same way that I might on a menu. And, and hopefully all those good nutrients are soaked up and turned into something that I can, something interesting that I can produce on the page. Yeah. And you don't just read widely, you write widely. You also write for comic books and uh, you've written a scripted podcast. Uh, how do you approach each of these media differently in your process? Yeah. And, you know, now I'm doing TV and movies too. And it's, you know, I have, a, I have a movie coming out at Sundance next week. First one that I've written, I co-wrote it with uh, the director, James Ponsold. And Congratulations. Thank you. Super geeked, except for the fact that um, 
sadly Sundance got shut down for in-person and it's understandably um, going to be a virtual experience this year, but still, still exciting. And when I'm, when I'm studying these different mediums, I'm always looking for, I'm always open, hoping to add to my storytelling arsenal. So let me give you an example of comic books. I think comic books have made me a better novelist. Here's some examples of why. Uh, every comic book is 20 pages and five to seven scenes. There's an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, and a D plot. The B plot becomes the A plot of the next issue. The C plot becomes the B plot. Uh, there's usually a splash page. In other words, a, a page where there's just a single image. There's usually a splash page in the first three pages, and there's usually a splash page as the final page. What I'm talking about here are constraints, right? And these constraints can actually be inspiring. And there's a kind of analog in poetry. Terence Hayes, the poet, talks about how the difference between free verse poetry and form poetry, form poetry like a villanelle or a sonnet, he says, you know, it's cool if you can break dance, but it's badass if you can break dance in a straitjacket. And I feel like comics are breakdancing in a straitjacket. Uh, you know, the, the constraints of them, though, uh, you know, I, I find ways to be inspired. I also find ways to be much more efficient. So with a novel, you know, a novel is maybe it's 250 pages. Maybe it's 700 pages, right? Uh, novels are referred to by Flaubert as baggy monsters. And that's because, you know, you have a lot of real estate. Um, and novels can be digressive. And novels can be a little flabby. Um, and, and you know you're supposed to as a fiction writer. You know this. You're supposed to be contributing to character and plot and theme all at the same time. But when you have that much room, sometimes you're a little neglectful. But with comics, right, here is uh, a fight scene, for instance. Now, you'll see in every fight scene in comics that people are talking a lot as they punch and kick and leap off skyscrapers and everything else. They won't shut up. And that's because these characters are working out some emotional thing or thematic thing even as they're punching and kicking and moving the plot forward, right? And so that's just one example of here I am writing comics and it just becomes ingrained in you and you realize and you carry that, that over, that, that tool over in a less bombastic way probably, but still it's there to the novel writing. And so The Unfamiliar Garden, you know, it moves. It moves fast. It's, it's meant to be a page turner. And the way in which it's functioning is a lot like a comic book in that way in that a lot of things are always being tackled. It's almost every scene is triangulated in that there's characterization, there's plot, there's theme, all, you know, symbiotically woven together. Have you gotten any bites from folks interested in turning your books into a TV series or movies or even a comic book series? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's task to me. I mean, I have been hired. I'm not allowed to say which studio, but I've been hired um, and I'm the pilot is underway for the ninth medal right now. Um, so I'm writing that and, um, you know, I'm working on a few other TV pilots as well. Um, and, and yeah, because of NDAs, I can't actually say who, um, but, but I'm really interested in, in the, in the medium. Um, and you know, that's another thing that I'm, I'm just studying right now. I'm reading all of these scripts. I'm reading pilot scripts. I'm reading movie scripts. I'm watching and rewatching movies, sometimes with the director's commentary on, uh, in order to just try to, you know, look underneath the hood and understand the component parts. 
We want to know if you've read anything or watched anything or listened to anything good lately. Some recommendations for our listeners. You know, a novel that I read this past year that just knocked me out. It's called The First 15 Lives of Harry August. And it's written by a woman named Claire North. And she's in the UK. Um, and nobody talks about this book, but it's just mind-blowingly good. And I don't want to get into too many spoilers, but just the basic premise is, here's this guy, Harry August, and he lives a life, and then he dies. And when he awakens, it's on the train platform, and his mother is giving birth to him, and she's going to die, which is exactly what happened in his last life, except that he has now all the knowledge that came before. And so he goes forward in this life, and he actually goes crazy and ends up jumping out of a window um, by the time he's seven. And then he was born again on that train platform at the same time in the same year with all the knowledge that came before. And this time he's institutionalized. And then he slow every time he gets smarter and smarter about it. And he accumulates thousands of years of knowledge and comes to understand, and this is as far as I'll go with spoilers, that he's not alone that there are others like him who are being reborn and reborn again. But some of them are being reborn, right? 50 years ago, prior to his birth. Some are being reborn 50 years after his death, um, that there's this history uh, of these people and they, they become members of something called the Cronus Club. And they're able to pass messages to each other throughout time. And they also come to recognize that one of them is responsible for the world ending and the world keeps ending because they can communicate across decades by, you know, speaking through each other, uh, that the end of the world is coming closer and closer and closer each time. Anyways, that book blew me away. I highly recommend it. And speaking of parallel lives, what do you see yourself as in five years? That's a standard interview question, you know, novelist, comic book writer, screenwriter, there are lots of parallel lives going on with you. Uh, where do you see yourself going? What do you want to be known as, as your career progresses? Uh, I just, I just want to be known as a storyteller. Um, I just write across medium. So I hope to keep writing comics. I hope to keep writing novels. I hope to keep kicking down doors in Hollywood as well. For more about Benjamin Percy's unfamiliar garden and the real-world science of fungi, including a reality check from University of Washington mycologist Steve Trudell, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. And while you're online, check out DominicaFetaPlace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. Just follow the link from the Cosmic Log item. Thanks to Benjamin Percy and Harper Collins for the interview, and thanks to James Emily for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies. <laughs>